Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. It's a new year. It's 2023. We're still doing things the way we always have here. Um, Subject of today's show, we're going to be talking about the airline industry. Airline industry, always a topic of conversation around the holidays. People got to fly home. But this year in particular, they came under intense scrutiny, especially Southwest Airlines, because Southwest Airlines had to cancel a lot of people's flights and then chose not to give any of them refunds or like accommodations or the ability to get new flights. Uh, Ryan, I, I was told by Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg that uh, under federal authority, airlines have to provide those things, and surely people to judge wouldn't lie about things like that or his standing in the Iowa primary. Um, seems that the Secretary Pete was mistaken on this one. Hmm. Yeah, Southwest has become sort of the villain of the week, you know, and you know nobody's really happy with them, even. It, in the best of circumstances, nobody really loves an airline, do they? Like the airport experience is miserable just from my own personal experience. I had a flight delayed due to uh, bathroom maintenance issues uh, myself, unrelated to the Southwest issues, which um, as we're going to discuss. Point, point of clarification, the, the bathroom issues were on the plane, correct? Yes. Yeah, you did yes. say myself at the worst possible moment <laughs> in that sentence. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Yes. Okay, just, uh, just want to be clear. Plane bathroom didn't work, so they had to get a new plane. Um, plane broke, got it. My 7.45 p.m. takeoff turned into a 1 a.m. takeoff. Oh, um, that's nice. That's real nice. Got $150 back in a travel voucher, so. Oh, boy. I'll still keep flying that garbage. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. You're right. Airlines are like diet travel these days. It's too early in the episode for us to be so turbulent, if you will. Um, We should discuss actually the point of things, which is that Southwest's issues in particular seem to be caused by, you guessed it, uh, their mistreatment of labor and their desire to cut costs at all cost. What did Southwest do wrong here? Why did everything go south for them and not west? Okay, I I need to ground these puns. We can't be doing this again. But one of you will have to jump in here if I if I get this wrong. My understanding is that Southwest has had several meltdowns over the past few years. They had a very recent one out of their Jacksonville Center. Well, they sorry, they don't have hubs and spokes. They're Southwest. They're different. But there are nonetheless airports that they are based out of. And apparently they had a meltdown in something called Jacksonville Center last year, I believe, in, in October or so. And then two years ago, though, 
it, it's 2023. Okay, no, no, no. It's only January. <laughs> I will not accept this. <laughs> Southwest apparently had the most antiquated scheduling software that survived Y2K, apparently. And everyone has to use it. Every crew member, pilot, whatever, uh, except the executives, or obviously it would have been changed because they would have to care about it. But because it's not their problem, they've just sicked it on everybody. And the long and short of it is that when the software went down, there was no way for pilots, flight attendants, et cetera, et cetera, uh, ground crew, I think, like even if you were a baggage handler or any of those people, even even then, uh, you had to manually call Southwest to let them know where you were in the 2020s, where I would conservatively estimate 45 major corporations know where I am and what I am doing at any given moment of my life. Because again, we live in hell. Somehow, Southwest is the only company so committed to the freedom of privacy that they didn't know where any of their employees were. And as a result, they couldn't fly any of the damn planes because you kind of need to know where your employees are for that. And uh, employees were tying up the phone lines, trying to call in and so on. And of course, this led to a lot of angry customers. And this left the people who have the least culpability for this debacle, right, holding the back because it was gate agents, flight attendants, and pilots having to handle a lot of angry customers who really should just be uh, – I'm going to stop before I run us afoul of any censorship – but who should really be demanding answers from executives way farther up the ladder – not, you know, people who are presumably, as they're trying to attend you, holding a phone in their other hand, waiting to get through to the apparently still like five number operator switchboard system uh, from the 1950s that they have to use to, which is, by the way, before Southwest was even founded, to be able to get through and say, hey, I'm at the job where I'm supposed to be because I have no choice because otherwise I can't eat. Well, so... That ended up being, I think, the ultimate cause of the meltdown of, of right around Christmas. I think uh, it coincided with that big polar vo vortex that came through uh, right before Christmas and hit the entire country. Um, so there was a weather event that was then exacerbated by this horrible, horrible scheduling system that they have that they've failed to update for decades. Uh, but before the workers at Southwest started speaking out about this, the CEO and leadership of Southwest kept insisting that the problem was worker callouts, that uh, Southwest workers were, were calling in sick. And to the point even where I, I remember seeing a Southwest memo saying that if you called in sick, you could get fired during this time period. And that's what they tried to blame this on is, is the workers themselves. So that level of, if you want to even play devil's advocate with it and pretend and, and assume that they were being honest in their thoughts about what was causing this problem. Um, there's been no walk back from that. They haven't ever acknowledged that that wasn't happening, that that workers were doing their best to actually show up where they were needed in order to get people home for the holidays and on time and over this. Because this lasted days that people were stuck 
then they never walked it back. Right. They canceled a bunch of flights, and in order to avoid like delaying future flights, they just told those people that they were SOL effectively and told them, get a new flight after the holidays. Southwest among the airlines is sort of uniquely vulnerable in this way. Uh, Noah, you alluded to it, where other airlines fly sort of a hub system. You know, you've got to fly into New York before you can fly elsewhere. Uh, Southwest flies directly from small city to small city or mid-sized city to mid-sized city. So you can get a Southwest flight from Rochester to a place like Jacksonville, maybe, or something that isn't traditionally a transit hub. I live in New York now. I'm able to fly directly from New York to Rochester and back. But if I lived in Boston, that might not be the case. So another airline has these sorts of issues where they need a fresh pilot and somebody is in the hub ready to go, in theory, at least. But nevertheless, even with that sort of structure, they made mistakes here. They were not you know, just the victim of a difference in approach. I'm going to read from a open letter written by the SWAPA, Southwest Airlines Pilots Association, their union, uh, which was published December 31st uh, after this whole debacle. Um, And they lay out that these issues were, again, we had foreshadowing. Um, Quoting from the letter, during Gary Kelly's tenure as CEO, Southwest Airlines has returned approximately $12 billion to shareholders while increasing his own total annual compensation by more than 700%. Much of that money was spent executing billions of dollars in share buybacks. Share buybacks that were once illegal that provide no benefit for the company itself while artificially inflating share prices, thus inflating stock-based executive compensation, and sent the clear message that the company has excess cash on hand, but that the CEO thinks there is no better place for investment of capital within his company. All the while, there were clear and constant signals that there were aspects of our operation that were in desperate need of significant investment and upgrade. And all while subject matter experts, including our analysts at SWAPA, pleaded with management to make the investments into our tech infrastructure before we suffered an existential meltdown. As recently as early November, SWAPA President Casey Murray said, quote, I fear that we are one thunderstorm, one ATC event, one router brownout away from a complete meltdown. Whether that's Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's, that's the precarious situation we are in. And as we now know with hindsight, those words prove pathetic. Of course they did, because executives hate nothing more than when an employee is right. And sure enough, I mean, it, it, the letter lays out a very convincing case that we all know to be true in our bones, which is that Southwest doesn't give a damn about transportation. It is not doing Southwest executives, who are the people with all the power in the company, ultimately, because they're the ones who are deciding what the company does with its money, are not interested in flying people from place to place. They're interested in the line going up. And all of their decisions are to make the line go up. And when you do that, you can't treat, you simply cannot treat uh, uh, your pilots, your crews, all of that as anything but liabilities. 
You're not going to treat them as assets of the company, which Herb Kelleher, who founded Southwest, repeatedly claims that he did. I'm sure he's lying through his teeth because business people have not changed in the past thousands of years. But he he made it a point to say that he always believed that your employees had to come first because if they uh, if they were well taken care of, then shareholders would be well taken care of by employees that were happy and productive. And Gary Kelly is apparently of the new school. I don't know how true this is, but the letter portrays him as a man who is entirely interested with the accounting of the company, doesn't really care. And it does include a statement from him openly saying that he feels Southwest employees have been very well taken care of and shareholders are still waiting for a return, which is very interesting because I think when shareholders don't get a return on their money, they tend to go find somewhere else to park that money. They don't wait around. They have choices, unlike the rest of us who have to work for a living. Yeah, I think there's... um maybe a distinction that you're seeing being drawn, not just in Southwest's case or the airline industry's case, but across various fields where at least if in the olden times, uh, somebody who was an executive at that company was passionate about that industry in particular. Yet the very least, they had some sort of interest in whatever task or product or service that industry was providing, uh, be it newspapers or airlines, you know, that was sort of the thing that they were passionate about. And now you have a class of executives that is, they're hired because they were successful at another company in an unrelated industry, and they are exclusively interested in the financial aspect of things. They have no real passion for, actually doing the job, you know, if they're making money in the airline industry or the newspaper industry, it doesn't really make a difference to them. The end result being that workers are treated as expendable. They're, you can just start up a new company in some other industry if this doesn't work out. Yeah, there's an increasing emphasis on CEOs and like leadership as being a unique skill set that is unrelated to the actual function of that job. So you as a CEO, like you're running a business is the same. It doesn't matter what the business is. It doesn't matter if you're running a transportation organization or you're running a, a nonprofit, even to some de- degree, they're all the same. And so all of these, this class of people they have intense class solidarity because they're all like replaceable and they all could go in their Im- imagination into each other's position. Like I could swap CEOs at, let's say like an oil company and Southwest and there wouldn't be any noticeable difference in how they're, they're operating because it's all the same. All businesses run exactly the same. And that is such a disconnect from how we know, like us everyday people who work, like my job is way different from Noah's and from Ryan's. Like our jobs are very, very different. I don't understand why our, our, where we work is run the same. See, that's, that's actually a very interesting point because I, I do remember telling once a coworker, so I'm a teacher. No way, man. That's crazy. And I told a coworker that, you know, he had worked maybe five full-time years as a teacher and then a couple years in a support role. And I just didn't see how that makes you, you know, 
expert enough in the idea of education that you can observe veteran teachers as a principal. I would think that in that case, you'd assign somebody to do that and you would take their recommendations over yours. And he hit me with the, well, leadership and observation are their own skill set. And that is exactly the kind of thinking that results in this. It's the idea that leadership is its own thing, its own proficiency or, or video game skill that you have that is completely separate from your ability to know what you're talking about. By the way, I know that this is like one of the most minor nitpicky things. Gary Kelly, the CEO of Southwest, apparently was one of the big airline executives test testifying against mask mandates in front of Congress, testified with a bunch of other unmasked airline execs, two days later, positive for the Rona. So my man has a history of making incredible decisions with completely unpredictable consequences that no one could have seen coming because he is inured from them. Because having money means you are never wrong. It means you are never sorry. It means you never have to suffer for anything you do. Because this Southwest stuff has been going on forever. We've uh, got another article about all of the different issues that the negotiating committee from SWAPA has been bringing up since October with pilot fatigue being a big one. And that's going to come up again. This is not the last time we're going to talk about it on this episode. That the company keeps assisting on flexibility, whereas the pilots very understandably, want to know where they're flying and when, because apparently Southwest is, with their antiquated scheduling software, writing the schedule the same way a particularly petty manager at Chipotle does it. And then you've also got, on top of all of that, right, um, flight attendants are having the same issues where they can't figure out, the outdating scheduling system gets brought up, but everybody's Pilots are calling fatigue despite the union asking them not to. The airline is putting more pressure on union leadership because they can't get a deal. And by the way, they can't strike because they're covered by the Railway Labor Act. Now, Noah, <laughs> you say, they're not railway workers. No, but they are as we know, airlines are... The no, planes are the trains of the air. So obviously You're always saying that. Yes. Yeah. So of course, of course, these sky trains have to be governed by the same antiquated act that existed before I think the invention of the jet engine. At the risk of veering our discussion too off course, I wonder if there's some as long as it doesn't stall. Uh there's some tie you know, between this trend we've talked about where executives are inter interchangeable, industry doesn't matter, and sort of the proliferation of business schools at, at colleges and universities, you know, it seems to me like if the ethos is all being sort of homogenized at the educational level, and that's why you're not seeing the sort of specialization that we once did. But that's speculation, and I'm sure someone more knowledgeable could speak better. I don't think that's wrong. Business schools should be metaphorically hacked off from anything like a university with machetes. Um, they are not part of education. They're not a real school. They should not be treated as such. They should have the same reputation as like that really shady institute that uh, is way too dependent on student loans and for-profit colleges and places like that. But I think the other problem you're having is that we no longer train anybody on the job. 
which is not the last time that's going to come up either. So there is no incentive to gain knowledge about your industry. There is no incentive to being a subject matter expert, period. Speaking as a teacher whose whole job is to be a subject matter expert, that is no longer my job. That has been completely taken away from me in the time that I've been teaching. My job is to manage relationships. That is it. My knowledge is incidental to what I do. And much the same way, if your homogenized ethos of business filters down, what you end up with is, well, nobody needs to know what they're doing. It, it, it just, it doesn't matter. All you need to know is abuse your employees as much as possible, treat customers like crap while rhetorically committing to them, uh, grease the right palms, bribe the right politicians, commit just enough federal crimes to not get you caught. And for the love of God, do not allow your employees to unionize if they haven't already. That's it. Those are the five pillars. That's all you need. Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to take a break here. Uh, when we return, we will broaden our scope here from Southwest Airlines, fairly years in particular, to the industry as a whole and all of its various problems. You know, Southwest, again, not really unique in being bad and unpleasant and a villain. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. Uh, we spent the first segment of today's show talking about the Southwest Airlines meltdown over the holiday season where they had to cancel a bunch of flights and had to effectively be the Grinch that stole Christmas for a lot of people by not even giving them the opportunity to take another flight home. But as we alluded to in the first segment, it's not just Southwest Airlines that you know, has some issues with how it's handling labor. It's not just Southwest that is prioritizing profit over the long-term needs of, you know, the people who rely on air travel, which is too many people, but that's for another segment, perhaps. Um, I, I think the place to start here is actually early in the pandemic uh, with the original sort of, um, COVID bill, the one that gave people, how much were those checks? $800, $700? The first ones were, the first ones were $1,200, were not they? Yeah. Okay. That's right. It, yeah. It was like $1,200 and then there was an right. $800. Not enough. No. but yeah, not even close. else that bill did and something that was not exactly popular at the time, uh, was bail out the airline industry, which uh, as this article from Business Insider, April 3rd, 2020 notes, had spent a lot of the years leading up to the pandemic uh, choosing to buy back its own stocks, which is bad for the reasons SWAPA laid out in um, their letter last segment. To quote from the article, 
Earlier this month, Airlines for America, a trade group representing the major U.S. airlines, asked the federal government for $50 billion in assistance to protect and preserve the 750,000 jobs of U.S. airline companies. You know, industry, naturally, during the pandemic, nobody was flying, or at least most people were not flying, needed the money, but... Again, this is a case where they didn't exactly give themselves a cushion to work with. They chose things that made them more vulnerable to shocks like this. Uh, To quote from the article, in 2019, American reported paying all of its employees a grand total of $12.6 billion. Um, And then later in the article, it notes, if you add it all up, American has spent $12.9 billion over the last six years on its own stock. The buybacks are more than they were paying for labor effectively. And they don't help the company in any real way other than to inflate the stock price. They don't make it a more durable company. They don't help the workers. They don't help the customers. Yeah. doesn't matter. Uh, You're, you're helping. Ultimately you're helping people who already have all the power and money in the world and are some of the worst human beings in the universe. I think your your choice of uh the Grinch is particularly apt here because everything Thor Ravenscroft said about him is also true of every single airline executive. So uh unfortunately, because we seem to be running really short on Christmas ghosts and uh who's, I guess. We are just going to have to hope that something else can happen. Maybe Pete Buttigieg will find his spine one of these days, Mm -hmm. or maybe Congress will choose to do something on the subject. But right now, what it looks like is- airline CEOs will see their hearts grow three sizes. One can hope. (laughs) Yeah, it's- they've they've been doing this for the second time this, this show. They've been doing this since I was in high school. They've been complaining about fuel prices, redirecting the flow of money right back into the company, doing nothing to address massive problems. This is why JetBlue and Southwest for a long time were kind of the odd ones out, because under the management that they had, that was actually for a long time not cut from the same class of executive that every other airline had. They actually made it a point to offer certain, you know, uh, work hard to offer a little bit of a better situation for their employees and their customers. And as a result, they were actually quite reliable because full disclosure, I'm from San Juan. I don't really have a choice when it comes to getting to my family because we've decided that ships and boats are just not going to work unless you're doing it for leisure. And I don't feel like signing up for the merchant marine. So if I want to see my family, I have to get on a plane. And those were two of the most reliable ways to get home with decent service, decent cost, not a whole lot of foul-ups or anything else. Anytime I tried another airline, it was usually a disaster. But I could at least rely on those two. And both of them have now been replaced because I know a couple CEOs ago, JetBlue, their shareholders actually revolted because the person that was in charge of the company they felt was not sufficiently responsive to shareholder price. They wanted a more Gary Kelly type CEO and they got him. And as a result, well, we are where we are now. Uh, There's, there's literally nothing just stopping these airlines from holding us all hostage because we sometimes do actually need to get on planes. 
And in much in much of the country, you don't have an alternative because all of these same people have been lobbying against things like high speed rail or better mass transportation. So that was again the article I mentioned that was from April 2020. Here's another insider article from August of 2022, where they talk about how the original bailout for the airline industry actually put a freeze on their ability to buy back their own stocks. It lasted about two years and was due to expire in October, which happened. Um, So Congress saw that this policy of buying back their own stock wasn't really good, but said, you know, just wait out the attention and you can do it again effectively. And this article quotes heavily from Sarah Nelson, uh, the head of the flight attendants union, who um, is pretty vocal as to what we should expect from the result of buybacks, delays and not better service for customers and worse for labor. So fun. She nailed it. That's exactly that. Good job her. Yeah. Stock buybacks are mysterious. Like they should definitely still be illegal. I get why they aren't because all the people who would benefit most from them are the people in power. These, these are a way of, at the end of the fiscal year, uh, telling the IRS or whatever, actually, no, we didn't make this much money. Uh, you know, we didn't make $12 billion because we spent it all. It's all gone. There's nothing for you to tax anymore because um, they wasted it all on stock buybacks. Uh, they could have done so much else with it. We could have taxed that income. We could have uh, put it into wages. We could have put it into infrastructure uh, improvements, um, but we didn't. We just greased some palms. Uh, I'm going to quote a bit from Nelson directly here uh, as quoted by the article. Quote, Congress should be looking at what it looks like when you actually have a company focused on the business, she said, and not constantly having pressure from investors to siphon off those profits for short-term gain for investors and long-time harm to the company direct harm to the people on the front lines and the customers who are trying to get a service. Um, Sounds sort of familiar if you heard our first segment. Yeah. It's, it's particularly disgusting because like in many service industries, education among them, oftentimes the only people arguing for the actual service that is being performed are also the people with the least decision-making power in the room. We've talked on this show multiple times about how many teacher strikes were successful because despite the popular image that teachers only strike for their own conditions, they were actually striking to get improvements for nurses, librarians, social workers, counselors, every other kind of school employee, not just themselves. Much the same way here, the only people who seem to give a damn about what an airline actually does, other than, you know, be a a ticker symbol are flight attendants and pilots and uh, ground screw workers and all the, all the people who, again, none of these people are in the room when these things are being decided. None of these people are getting to say, no, actually, we shouldn't buy back a bunch of shares when we have tons of spots that need opening, uh, that need filling, pardon me. Uh, and when we have all these routes that you're opening, which is what I meant to say, and we can't adequately staff or schedule them because, again, your scheduling system runs off of, like, Windows 95. So 
when you have all of these problems and the only people who care about them are the people least able to affect change there, that's a recipe for catastrophe. And we're seeing that play out here. And it's going to continue playing out because like in everything else, if, the, if, if there is no incentive for these companies to change, if they don't have to, they're not going to. They benefit the people, as Lou said, that, well, that matter in our society. And it's not any of us. Yeah. It's worth noting again that like these predictions of chaos came from August of last year and took four months to prove true. Less than that. It doesn't take a genius, uh, literally, or in the sense we use, to see these things coming. But anyways, um, I do have an article from just before the new year uh, from the Chicago Tribune, which asks, will labor strife led by pilots become the airline industry's next big obstacle? Which the tone taken by this article is a little objectionable. They uh, quote, say, uh, labor could again be a pain point for travelers and carriers alike which hmm, not sure is the framing we hear i'm punching out well Um, isn't isn't this coming from a trunk publication that's right yeah the tribune the the tr and trunk yeah mega trunk (laughs) trunk hq (laughs) it's still funny Just going to quote here from the article, a union representing 8,300 Southwest Airlines customer service workers proved a new contract with 25% raises over four years. Employees in that work group rejected two contract offers in the last year. Quote, labor thinks this is the best time for them after several years of stagnating wages, said Bijan Fassi, a finance professor at Emory Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona, Florida. A decade ago, consolidation was very good for the airlines because they got some kind of power on the employees. But that is changing now. You know, labor at these companies, uh, whether at the customer service level, in the airplanes themselves, um, recognizes that the companies since the pandemic have done okay for themselves. And, you know, naturally they want a piece of that pie. I think that's all well and good and not, in fact, a pain point. Another pain point for airlines, I guess, uh, you know, the possibility of being fined for mistreating their workers. Uh, This headline from the Dallas Morning News, American Airlines fined for retaliating against flight attendants over cabin fumes. Uh, OSHA says the Fort Worth thing. Yeah. OSHA says the Fort Worth-based carrier docked attendance points and discouraged reporting of workplace injuries and illnesses. Um, How much were they fined, Ryan? Let's see. $6,837. Was was that per claim? No, that seems to be the total of the fine here. Yeah, I I can see how this is a real pain point for American Airlines. $6,000 $6,000 fine That's, for putting their worker for retaliating against their workers who said, Hey, your plane is making us sick. 6,837 bucks. That's like, that's like what New York to Boston during the holidays now. <laughs> <laughs> Only if you check a bag. Yeah. It's actually 85% of that is just to check bag and trees. <laughs> 
how how much trouble do I get us in if this is where I drop the death to America? Because <laughs> so much you trouble. Explicitly have to say death to American. <laughs> this is this is one of the most frankly unserious things about this country. The fact that these fines don't scale up, the fact that we haven't Everything else has adjusted for inflation, but OSHA fines, apparently. The OSHA fines are still being charged on like $1962. So <laughs> this is... I, uh... I'm going to quote a bit from this article. Um, Our investigation found that the flight attendants engaged in protected activities when they reported illnesses related to jet fuel fumes seeping into the aircraft cabin. Timothy Miner, OSHA's area director, said in a prepared statement. Um, yeah, yeah, that does seem like something that you should be allowed to do at work, complain that the jet fuel fumes are entering your workplace. Uh, which also, like, passengers would be affected by that, presumably. None of this seems good. Uh, continuing from the article, American Airlines spokesman Rob Himmler said the company is reviewing the findings of the investigation. Okay, I finally figured out the pro- the the issue and why they didn't think it was a bad deal. Uh, with a guy named Himmler, clearly American Airlines yeah. is just trying to create a master race by accelerating the mutation process oh in our bloodstreams. Okay, but his name is but his name is Rob Himmler, which is a good thing. Oh! Long Himmler. I'm so sorry. My bad. My mistake. When, when will it be time for Rob Hurler? Is what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> this segment is in the tailspin. Um, well, what else is there to say? All of these things are the same thing. Airlines make their employees sick and fatigued and absolutely just work them to the bone every single time the employees point this out, and no one cares because we all need to fly somewhere now and again, so it's not like any of us can do anything about it. When consumer action sort of happened in terms of like the pandemic occurring and none of us being able to fly, except for... (sighs) Whatever. I'm not going to get into it at this point, but... When none of us were able to fly, they just got the federal government to bail them out, and then they continued holding all of us as hostages, and their own employees as worse hostages who are treated worse. So there's just no good to come out of all of this. The only thing to do is to tell like jokes that were maybe solid in 2017, because nothing has changed in that regard. That's the, the airlines have run the same playbook for decades now. And they've gotten away with all of it because they, again, bribe the right politicians and they know that they've got everybody over a barrel because there is no meaningful competitive option, which might be foreshadowing. I hope it is foreshadowing. Actually, it's the opposite of foreshadowing. If anything, it's forelighting. So there you go. (laughs) Just making stuff up now. Good job, Noah. One last article before we close out this segment. Uh, headline here from CBS News, this from early December last year, 2022. Uh, airlines are lobbying for a change to federal regulations that could put one pilot in the cockpit. Uh, as things currently stand, airlines are required by federal law to have 
two pilots in the cockpit of any sort of commercial flight uh, for the reasons you might expect, you know, what if something happens to one of the pilots? You know. uh, but the airlines say that, uh, you know, technology is so good that, you know, we don't really need that anymore. You know, we can get by with just one pilot. Uh, the CBS article does note that uh, another thing driving this move is uh, the increase in pilot salaries. Oh. Yeah. Well, isn't that interesting? Huh. Weird coincidence. Hmm. It It is really funny how every time people ask for just the minimum amount that a company could care about them, like maybe pay them better after years of record inflation, which they caused in the first place, they respond by making it cost you something because they cannot not have it be a trade-off. You have to lose something to gain something. Otherwise, the executive feels bad and usually not masculine enough. And then they do horrible things when they get home. So really, it's your problem that they are, you know, probably doing things that should land them in jail. Um, so you need to agree to this terrible deal. Uh, yeah, yeah. The railways are also trying this. Uh, so far, they've been shot down because, again, there's a Denzel Washington movie that tells you exactly why this is such a bad idea. We also have real-life incidents in the case of airlines. We have, uh, what was it, the German pilot? I think it was German I, Wayne. I can was quote the, from the article directly pilot. here. Um, uh, quote, many recent examples tend to confirm the union's argument, including a 2015 crash in Europe. A co-pilot of a German Wings flight locked the pilot out of the cockpit and deliberately cr- crashed the plane, killing himself and 149 other people, giving credence to the ongoing argument that in an airborne crisis, you need two pilots working in concert to save the aircraft, as was the case in the, uh, quote, miracle on the Hudson, when pilots Chesley, Sully, Sullenberg, er, and Jeffrey Skiles successfully ditched a U.S. Airways flight in New York's Hudson River after the plane hit a flock of geese on takeoff. They didn't make a movie about the other, about the co-pilot there, I, I would know, you know. Well, you know, you got to give it a few years. Tom Hanks has to pick up the script and, you know. Just seems like the movie's title should have been Sully and Skiles or, you know, make it like a buddy cop drama, buddy pilot. Instead of what I, it was, which is just a uh, oh, we're getting old and being replaced, which is all Clint Eastwood can write nowadays. Yeah. There is a great part where two Port Authority workers argue over Dennis Eckersley, though. That part rules. <laughs> I, totally unrelated from anything except that you did reference a Denzel Washington movie. Either of you ever see the movie Flight? Yes. Uh, where he flies an airplane yes. upside down? Down, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I think about that and giggle to myself. Speaking of cabin fumes. Yeah, generally a great movie. It's not really about flying airplanes, gonna say. No. And if if you thought that was the most literal-minded a movie title about an airplane could get, there is now a movie called Plane. (laughs) Flight at least has a double entendre, I feel. Yeah. Yes. Like there are other ways you can think of that term. Plane, I don't know. Are, are they traveling well, between dimensions? I, I think it's actually the, the, the other plane is the battlefield between them and the like Filipino rebels or whatever the hell it is they're fighting. Listen, I get to be mad at this movie. They shot it in Puerto Rico. So 
like Gerard Butler got to enjoy more of my home island than I've gotten to because of airlines. So, yeah. Um, all of this in the last segment is to say that, you know, airlines not doing a real good job. They're trying to cut costs in order to uh, make your experience worse, but their experience, you know, as the people enjoying the profits better. And we here on Punching Out say that's bad. Agreed. Here, here. Uh, when we come back from this brief break, we'll try to think of something good that could happen here. Not sure what it'll be yet, but we'll come up with something. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Planes! And Lou. Hey, guys. We are now beginning our final descent here um, segment. Uh, We'll be uh, trying to untangle this web of you know airlines being really bad to their employees and passengers uh you know we spent the first 45 minutes today talking about just that but how are we how how do we make the whole experience better for everybody because it like as i said at the top of the show i find it genuinely miserable almost every time i'm on a plane it's you know, an airport is a place where it's the place I am when I'd rather be somewhere else. It, I don't like it. It's there's something very evil about the whole experience that I don't enjoy. How do we make it not evil? I'll answer your question in a second, sir. But if you could please move your seat back into the upright unlocked position for me. Having said that. <laughs> The problem that you have, because I actually really, for for the majority of my life, I have flown a lot, and I have actually generally really enjoyed air travel. I like flying. I like airports. There's something nice about it being one of the few. I I am the rare person who felt bad when Wi-Fi started being a thing on planes, and I'm happy that they paywall it because it is the only form of transportation I take on a, on any kind of semi-regular basis where I literally for those two hours can't do anything about anything. You, you have to leave me alone. You have no choice. I cannot communicate with you. It's over. And I think there's a few things. There's the fact that you get nickel and dimed at the airport for everything. Nothing is easy to get anymore. Uh, everything is, is, you know, they, they've, the electronic support infrastructure now that everything is through your devices is woefully inadequate at most airports. You're getting, airlines are charging you for everything from check bags to pretty soon, apparently a seat that you can actually sit in that that's coming down the pike at some point. And there's a lot of that. And I don't really know how you would solve. I have my ideas for how you'd solve that problem, but I don't know if they're applicable. The other problem is that it shouldn't be the only way to get long distances in this country. 
with any kind of reliability. And I think that's where the actual most socialist vehicle comes in, which is, of course, the train. That's right. You know, have the luxury of getting on a form of train almost every day here in New York City, uh, subways and such. But, you know, the for the most part, like if I want to go somewhere else, and again, New York is the best place in the country in this regard, a plane is going to be more convenient than a train just because of the nature of our rail infrastructure and how we've allowed it to sort of dwindle over the last several decades because of the rise of the airline industry. And, you know, it was so convenient to fly from New York to Buffalo or Rochester. Who would want to take a train? And now as we realize more about the environmental costs of having those convenient flights and those regular flights, you know, we're recognizing that, oh, hmm, actually miracles don't exist. You know, you can't have your miracle carriage in the sky without some drawbacks. Um, but yeah, like an expansion of railway infrastructure in this country to at least allow people the alternative to the cramped spaces on a plane for their long distance travel would go some ways towards making the airplane experience better. I feel because in theory airlines would have to compete. Yeah. Like with all competition under capitalism, uh, it, it ends up not being it because they all collude to get out of each other's way. And, or in the case of JetBlue. um, a few years ago, they decided, oh, yeah, we're just going to charge a bag of fees anyways, even though this was like a cornerstone of our airline, uh, just because they could, because everybody else did it. And there was no reason for them not to. It wasn't a unique feature to their their airline anymore. Um, sadly, I think Southwest is the only airline that doesn't charge for bags. Well, they probably can't process it through the, uh, through their scheduling system somehow. Yeah, clay tablets are notoriously fragile so noted noted southwest uh pilot Anna Sear and his uh low quality copper can't handle uh check bags anyway back on topic airlines are locked into a race to the bottom and have been for decades at this point and people have talked about how this is ultimately because of deregulation from the 1970s Jimmy Carter deregulated beer deregulated i think the trucking industry was another big one and then deregulated airlines and the thing was the idea there was before then airlines were so heavily regulated that they competed on customer experience it was service that mattered which had you know its its own issues certainly but after that they competed purely on price which southwest in fact was founded as a low cost airline um, based on a, a similar operation in California. And I think one of the reasons that they had to fight like for four years to get the airline founded was these regulations kind of prevented too much competition from springing up in, in that market. You weren't supposed to be competing on price the way that Herb Kelleher wanted to. But now there's an explosion of low-cost carriers. And the problem is that when you have that, because you want to be the person getting those rides, getting those those butts and seats, basically, there is going to be the temptation to go cheaper and cheaper. 
And when you go cheaper and cheaper, you're going to have to cut services. You're going to have to cut things because there is no other way to continue lining the pockets of airline executives to the degree that they have without and, and continue opening routes and continue cheapening flights and everything without cutting services and without cutting labor. And now they're doing both. And they are lobbying Congress to let them do even more of that. And really, ultimately, what you've got is people like Gary Kelly, people like JetBlue's management class and so on. They're not interested in the idea of airlines as transportation companies. They're interested in the idea of airlines purely as stock, as as a, an instrument for generating shareholder revenue, which technically is their only legal responsibility. My proposal for this, which I know is as much of a non-starter in this country as high-speed rail, and it does move us in the short term in the wrong direction, is that, frankly, the U.S. should have a public airline. There are countries that have them, and having the ability, in fact, a ton of countries that have them, and the ability to provide a sort of like standard of service that could compete with other airlines that could say, you know, we might not be the most glamorous. It might not, it might still be better to fly business class somewhere else. But if you're a regular person and what you're looking for is a no frills airline experience, we will get you where you need to go. If that were a possibility, I think you could not just see competition with these major airlines that are trying to undercut on everything, but also that gives you an opening to maybe eventually force them out of certain markets that can be turned into high-speed rail, that can be turned into other forms of transportation. But for that, we would need a government with actual vision that isn't beholden to the Grinches of the world. And we don't have that. We have Pete Buttigieg. There was a bit in the CBS News article about uh, how they were lobbying for dual offer one pilots on a plane about you know the pilot shortage that they've been dealing with, which is... In a product of their own sort of overuse of pilots, you know, fatigue is really the biggest obstacle a lot of these airlines face to getting more flights off the ground. It's not a lack of pilots, it's just they're using the ones they have so much, which noted that, um, you know, in the olden times, they could reliably get, you know, fresh pilots out of the Air Force. And these days, the Air Force is primarily training people to, uh, fly drones via joystick because you know war has changed and so on um which is incredibly bleak in a number of different dimensions but um it seems to at least point to the idea that oh these companies were already reliant on government subsidy in the in the form of training you know uh, pilots had to come through the air force in this way the government is the only force big enough to reliably allow for something like air travel in a way that isn't horrible. And even then a lot of issues, but I I think what you're talking about with nationalizing an airline is maybe the best route we have towards air travel. That doesn't suck. Yeah. Because uh, the other problem is that airlines are struggling to get pilots from the air force. Because Air Force pilots are being trained to fly drones, as uh, I believe the term from the article you sent us were advanced gamers. Yes, which means the airline industry may be the only people who want to put more people into F-35s. Um, <laughs> that's 
couple straight episodes we've had an F-35 joke here. (laughs) How long we can keep that streak going in 2023. Um, I I think we might be uh, running out of fuel for this week, though. Let's bring this baby in. Yeah. Uh, For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. Thank you for flying Punching Out Airwaves. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.